0: Welcome to the Village Church Podcast Show, episode 28, a a twice-a-month podcast about culture, theology, and leadership. Today I'm joined on the show by Ann Lincoln Hollibaugh and Jen Wilkin. Today's going to be a little bit of a hodgepodge of ministry, leadership, culture, and theology as we discuss complementarianism, specifically whether or not we think the ideas of complementarianism and compatibility are at odds. And then we'll discuss the attributes of God and other ideas from Jen's new book, None Like Him. We'll also f- finish the show with Ask TVC. We'll be answering the questions from the past few weeks on Ask TVC. Before we jump into the into the conversation, I want to do some quick introductions, although both of you have been on this show before. Jen Wilkin is an author, teacher, and serves as a minister here at the Village Church within our Village Church Institute, and Anne Lincoln, Catherine Hollibaugh has served on the Village Church staff. Today is your 12-year work anniversary, and she has served as the elementary minister here for a long, long time. And so Anne is transitioning to the Village Church Denton, which uh, used to be a campus of the Village Church. We've talked about that on other shows, but Anne, you shared this with our staff today at our monthly Restore, where you just talked about the importance of going along with the people in a place. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love for you to just to share those sure. thoughts here.
1: Yeah, I'd love to. As um today is my work anniversary, 12 years. Work anniversary. I've, I've had lots of opportunity to look back and consider all that the Lord has done and what he's allowed me to be a part of and my heart has been filled with gratitude and really standing in awe of all that he's entrusted to me. It's been incredibly humbling and the joy of my life to serve this people. And I don't know that I had specific vocational ministry aspirations when I stepped onto staff here, but the Lord has certainly awakened Um, a love for this people and a call in my life to um, be a part of discipling the next generation and um, handle God's word. And as I've looked back, it's really been evident the significance of staying in a place with a people for a long time. And there are some things that you only get to see if you stay put for a while. You get to see kids grow up. You get to see disciples becoming disciple makers. You get to see loss. You get to see marriage. You get to see so many beautiful things in the lives of of a church family, really a family living as a family. But if you're just passing through on your way, kind of climbing some sort of ladder in ministry or whatever that can feel like as people have certain aspirations, you can miss something really beautiful that comes from just the beauty of remaining. And I've had the joy of doing that and I'm so grateful for it.
0: You've done a great job. You've served us faithfully and served us Really, really well. And I say that uh, not only as a friend and a pastor, but as a dad who has some kiddos that you have yeah. trained up and taught and, and you'll definitely be missed. And I Thank know you. we're thrilled for the Village Church Denton uh, to be able to receive you there and for your leadership just to continue to extend. I hope you get, you get a 12-year run there. That'd be fantastic. And then you can come back here. Um, Jen, <laughs> I, w- I want to ask you this. Sure thing, um,
1: Josh. Don't worry. All right. Don't we'll worry. Keep the door open. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: So Jen, you wrote a blog. I did. You did. You sometimes, well, you've written many blogs. You have a blog, and on that blog, you wrote a particular blog called Our Compatibility and Complementarity at Odds. And so this was a response to a piece arguing that, uh, this piece was arguing that in our relationships and marriages, we shouldn't pursue compatibility, but instead complementarity. And I'd love for you to talk about maybe what's helpful, unhelpful about this argument, why you wrote the blog, uh, what compelled you to do that.
2: Yeah, I think that uh, there's really no need to place complementarity and compatibility at odds with one another. I think that really, if you think about it, pretty much any relationship you've ever had with anyone started with some recognition of what you shared before you moved to any recognition of what you did not share. And the same should be true of marriage, or I would say it should certainly be true of marriage, that we start from a point of, I really like these things about you. These are things we have in common. And then it's those commonalities That enable us to celebrate complementarity within marriage. When I hang out with Jeff Wilkin and we like to garden together, or we like we have really exciting lives. Are you ready for all these analogies? Thrilling. Or or we like to uh, birdwatch, or whatever it is that the two of us are into. Anne's laughing because she knows I'm not not making up a fake example here. Uh, Those are the things that, when we are are dealing with each other's differences that are often related to um, gender we stay and we are committed to one another because of what we share and it makes us celebrate what we don't share. Instead of seeing those things as obstacles to relationship, they become things that actually enhance our relationship. Yeah, I think
0: about, um, so Natalie and I went to different colleges and we dated all through college. Um, so for five years uh, we were together and this is before uh, we had cell phones. So this is now I feel like I'm dating that myself was a long, long, long time, time ago. ago. Uh, but it wasn't in that, that long. Not that long ago. It's crazy to think <laughs> about that. But uh, what it did is it forced us to have conversations yeah. and uh, and and not have even the enjoyment of presence uh, all the time. And so in that and in those conversations, just learning Natalie as my friend and she became a good, sweet, trusted friend and that friendship blossom into a marriage. Right. And it's just one of those things. That it's just a good grace that the Lord um, led us into all of that. But I am, I am thankful that at the foundation is a friendship. And I think a lot of what you're talking about here in the blog and arguing for is that that's good. That's right. a good thing. Uh, we're starting with what makes us compatible um, but in the blog, you talk about not just you like to garden and Jeff likes to garden and birdwatch, and you both birdwatch together, and that's that sounds riveting.
2: But <laughs> they also have dogs they really enjoy. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's enough. Okay, out moving year. on,
0: <laughs> moving on. But thinking about um, this is rooted. This this compatibility is rooted in Genesis one and two in terms of our sameness. And so, let's talk about that a little bit. How does the image of God come to bear uh, in this discussion?
2: I think we've bought into a modern conception of male-female relationships that says men are from Mars, women are from Venus. But the picture that we see in Genesis is that both men and women are created by the same God and come from a garden and are intended to share this beautiful sameness just of humanity. And that's the picture that you see in Genesis 2 after Adam goes through that exercise of naming all of the animals. He basically watches everything march in front of him. And there are male and female animals that are watching in front of him that he is giving names to. And yet, so even though there are animals that share his maleness, there is nothing that shares his humanness. And so by the time Eve arrives, he's ready to sing a song about that. And he says that she is essentially same of his same and that she is there at last. And I think if our marriage relationship started with that, this is same of my same, how much better would people be? How much more ready would they be to face what was coming at them as their differences begin to emerge, if they mm-hmm. could start from a place, if this is what we share, these sure. fundamental things that unite us? Yeah, and
1: thinking about that, this, um, how key compatibility is, that we shouldn't vilify it or exalt it necessarily, right. how, um, how can it fall short as a means of holding relationships and marriages together?
2: Well, I do think, you know, you can go too far the other direction, as you were kind of indicating, to where you idolize compatibility. Everything has to be the same. And in fact, maybe the goal of our relationship is that we would share every single thing and that we would sort of lose our individual identities in one another. And that's certainly not the picture of marriage or even a friendship that we have set out for us in the, in the scriptures. We are to have enough commonality to hold us and enough that divides us to uh, make each of us necessary and, and, and to make all of our contributions needful.
0: Well, that's good stuff. Jen, I'm grateful for you. I'm thankful that you're right and speak and talk and teach. And um, I'm grateful that you're in this space and helping us think about all this. And so uh, thank you. Appreciate that. Okay, Jen, let's shift the conversation here a little bit. You got a new book coming out called None Like Him, 10 Ways God is Different from Us and Why That's a Good Thing. Uh, Talk about what compelled you to write this book. How, How would you sum up what you're hoping to say or communicate through this new work?
2: One of the things that is really important to me when I'm teaching women the Bible is that they learn to read the text looking for what it says is true about God before they start asking questions about what it's telling them is true about them. And what I've seen over and over again is that it's really hard for people to do that. Many of us are not that familiar with the attributes of God as they show up in Scripture. And so my first thought was, I want to write something that is going to help women better be able to see and articulate what is true about God as they're reading the text, just within the context of normal study time. But then the other piece that emerged for me was how when you look at God's attributes, they divide out generally into two categories. There's the things that are only true about God, things like omniscience and omnipotence. And then there are the things that are true about God, but can also be true about us. So things like his mercy or grace or that he is loving or long-suffering. And it occurred to me that so often we are devoting the lion's share of our time not to taking on the attributes of God that can be true of us, but instead to try to take on the things that can only and should only be true of God. So probably the most obvious example would be your smartphone. I really crave omniscience in a way that's not healthy, and my cell phone helps me— Feel like I am able to be something that only God is intended to be. Yeah, that's good. That's challenging, actually. Um, in the book,
1: you talk about fearing God and even frustrations with the way we've seen and used Proverbs 31. Will you talk about that just a little bit? How does a fear of God play um, into
2: an understanding that we are not like Him? Yeah, so Proverbs 31 is talking about what wisdom looks like, right? It's showing you what the wise woman looks like. And I began asking, you know, years ago in my 20s when I thought, gosh, I really need wisdom, and I'm not really sure where you find that. Where do I start with that? And I remember just being so surprised when I came across Psalm 111.10 that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that was just sort of a foreign idea to me. I thought, surely it should say, I want to replace it with the love of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so, then I started exploring just this idea of how fear of the Lord, it's not talking about being afraid of Him, obviously. It's talking about having right reverence for Him. And I began to realize that one of the reasons that we want to ascribe to ourselves things that are only true about God is because we lack awe. We we, we, we don't uh, look for and uh, sit under Times or times in scripture that are elevating our understanding of who he is in a way that cause us to sit in awe of him, and so because of that, we tend to think that we can rival him instead mm-hmm. of reflect mm-hmm. him right
0: that's pretty solid we We talked about this at, at our staff gathering today just about isaiah yeah. six and and the vision that Isaiah had where he saw the Lord high and lifted up and and his response was awe mm-hmm. i mean he well, he had a pretty profound response, one of recognizing his own position uh, and in being wholly different than this one, uh, the one true God and the seraphim are there and they're worshiping, and it, it's a pretty profound picture. And so I love what you're what you're illustrating there and kind of drawing out, and because the human heart longs for awe, mm-hmm. it longs to to see something, experience something grander, bigger more more lovely, splendid than itself. I mean, it's why we're drawn into epic stories, epic movies, epic whatever, scenes, and and to know that the scriptures are replete with descriptions and stories of this God who has spoken and made himself known, and he has made himself known as an awe-inspiring God. Right. And so that, that's pretty powerful. I, and you've, you've done a really, I, I guess, one of your hallmark labors here has been with our children not just teaching kids stories from the scriptures so right. that they would know oh I know the story about David and Goliath or I know the story about uh, Jonah and the whale or the fish um, but I it, you have made it kind of your life's work to teach children the attributes of God right and and so it's I want to take this concept and and expound upon it, not just for kiddos, but for all of us. Why is it important for us to understand and study the attributes of God?
1: Well, knowledge of God is foundational to everything that we are. You know, we live what we believe and we live responding to who we know God to be. Who knows that kind of infamous Tozer quote that what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so we ought to think right things about God. He's revealed himself um, through his word and through the person and work of Jesus. It's such a beautiful thing. We even talked about this this past weekend um, with our elementary age kids that we don't have to guess at what God is like. He's shown us and that's such a gift and he invites us into relationship with him and so we want to respond rightly to who he is but we can't respond rightly if we have wrong knowledge so understanding his attributes his nature his character is so key and for many believers this is such an area of struggle Mm -hmm. it's why we have a hard time trusting that he will provide, that he will protect, that he is able, we can kind of get our hearts around that, our minds around his power, his authority, his um, strength, but then his willingness, his compassion, his care for us as individuals can be so much more difficult for us to personalize. And so when we really consider what the scriptures show us, what he tells us he's like as um, someone who is generous. The God of heaven is a generous God. He gives what is best. He's um, perfectly wise. He knows exactly what is best. He promises to be a refuge for his children. He is sovereign. He alone is eternal. He has always been and will always be. And we know that it can anchor our hearts um, that he is and we are not. And just the tagline of the book, that's a really good thing. We cannot be the God of heaven. We cannot be self-existent. We cannot provide for ourselves. And he does not ask us to. He knows that we're small and he asks us to depend. And that frees us to worship him and walk in joy and peace.
0: So I think about John 4, where Jesus meets a woman at the well. And and in that conversation there, Jesus says, the father's looking for something. Mm -hmm. And Um, And thankfully, he tells us what the Father is looking for. He's looking for worshipers, those who worship Mm -hmm. him in spirit and in truth. And as we're thinking about, um, if you could just kind of get this picture that the Father is, he's in the heavens and he's searching, he's looking, and he's kind of looking down upon us. And he's looking for our hearts to be inclined towards him with this awe and wonder um, and worship. Right. not not emotion-driven worship, right. but a worship that comes with this collision of, yes, my emotions informed by the truth of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And I think about when we're discussing the attributes of God and we think about what's our response in light of this, right? There, there's a myriad of responses. There's a response of my heart is anchored. It's settled. There's comfort. There's peace. Mm-hmm. Um, there's trust. Uh, the, these attributes cause me to move. They cause me to do some things. Mm-hmm. But Ultimately, I think what's reflected by a right understanding of the attributes of God is is worship. Absolutely. And worship is our response right. in spirit and truth mm-hmm. to to God for who He is and what He's done. Mm-hmm. And so we're worshiping Him because He is altogether different. Yeah, he absolutely. is not like us. He is holy, just, righteous, forgiving, gracious, loving, patient. And so we've talked a little bit about the incommunicable attributes, and then there's the communicable. So those are big kind of long words. Jen, what do those words mean? And what does that help help me?
2: So incommunicable is just the ones that are only true about God that we can't and shouldn't take on. And then communicable are the ones that we can take on. They're the ones that form us in the image of Christ. And so both are important for us to understand. And if we, I think, you know, this whole discussion about awe, if we lack awe toward God, it's probably because we haven't been paying attention to what the Bible says about him. And it usually means that we have crafted him in our own image because we aren't—we don't stand in awe of someone who is like us. Mm-hmm. And so I think the church at different times leans either one way or the other on, on how it relates to, as the Lord's Prayer says, our Father in heaven. We either see him as too much of our Father who is near and not enough of that he is in heaven, that he transcends, or the other way around. And as I was writing the book, I was asking myself, you know, where are we now on this? Or where do women tend to be? And I think that typically what you find in women's studies or in women's writing is this, he's our daddy God, Mm. which is a beautiful concept and shouldn't be diminished, but it has to be held in tension with that he's also the God of the universe, that he sits enthroned between the cherubim. That's the awe piece. That's the piece that makes us not just want to snuggle, but also makes us want to worship. Right, because it's the worship piece that is going to orient our hearts properly toward Him, keep Him where He needs to be.
0: So, as you wrote in in your thinking and pondering and meditating on these attributes, and Anne, I'd love for you to chime in on this as well. As you've you've written statement after statement after statement, clarifying definition after definition. In, in a way that's accessible to little ones, uh, to kids. Is there an attribute that, that really ministered to you most profoundly as you wrote the book? I mean, you can't, you can't say, oh, I really like this one, don't like the other one, right? But as, as you wrote and as you think, which, which one stood out to you personally with your own hearts?
2: I think because of my stage of life, I'm a mom of four teenagers. The idea of being omniscient and sovereign was one that I really had to wrestle with personally because I can feel the pull as my children are moving toward autonomy, that I still want to know everything. But then a piece of me doesn't want to know everything. I know it's time to not know everything. But you know, when your kids are little, you do, you know every single thing that's going on with them and you relinquish that as they get older and we're at the point of relinquishment. I don't control everything that they do. They have to have an internal mechanism for choosing between right and wrong. That is what it's time for. But it's hard to shift gears mentally and say, It's up to, it's up to the Lord. It's always been up to the Lord. But my direct responsibility for keeping them Alive and safe and all of those things is is diminishing day by day and and will I let it go or will I fight for something in an idolatrous way that that strives to put me in a position that is only intended for God as they move into adulthood.
1: It's good. When I think about the attributes, it, it is difficult to. I mean, you're not. It's like asking to pick a you know favorite thing, but they're all the favorite thing. And mm-hmm. um, I think that. The, um, the attribute of compassion. Um, so when we think about God being compassionate, the way that we talk about it in kids' villages, that he sees, cares, and acts when his children are in need. And I that attribute is um, tender to me because we see progression. We see that the Lord, he sees his people, and then he's moved by it. He cares for us. And then he does something when mm. we're in need. He sees a need. He acknowledges that we are in need. He doesn't just leave us there. He feels about it. And then he moves on our behalf. And And um, we see that in Mark chapter 1. That's um, a narrative that's so clear where Jesus um, is greeted by a leper and he's moved with compassion or pity. And he reaches out and he touches this man and brings about immediate healing. And so I love the attribute of um, God being compassionate. I think the attribute of his generosity is also so beautiful and maybe the one that um, can be harder for me to personalize, honestly, that he gives what is best, that he
2: delights to bless his children. I love that. One of the things I've loved about Anne's ministry, since I just have a moment to talk about this, is... That so five out of six Wilkins have gotten sucked into her ministry sphere during the time that she's been here, and I'm and by thrilled about in, it. You
0: mean Invited really, in a to really serve, deep. Jen's the lone holdout. I'm the
2: lone holdout, but of course she and I have connected on so many other points that feels like I've well, Jen's leaving.
0: Anne's leaving. There is an open uh, position. That's okay. You don't want
2: me near the kids, but I will say that um, if if every child had gotten exposure to the things that Ann has crafted, oh, I'm going to cry on the podcast show. I wouldn't need to write a book like this. Mm. It's, it's, um, it's a beautiful thing to see children be given language to place around the nature and character of God that is going to benefit them throughout their, their walk. Mm-hmm. And um, I think if we started with a vision of God high and lifted up with our children, it would have such an impact on the way their faith matures and the rate at which they mature and the way in which they understand the world around them. Right. One of the things that was so interesting to me as I was writing the book is I did a little looking into what is the effect that awe has on us as humans. And what was interesting is that basically when we worship, to put Christian terms around it, we end up becoming more others-focused, which makes sense if you think about the great command. When we love God rightly, we then can turn and love others as well. And so it's a means of—and this is just secular research that, that turned up that people who have a sense of awe are more likely to consider other people. And so I think what a gift to our children to start them in a place where they begin with, if this is who God is, right. then, and then who am I right. and how should I treat others in right. light of that?
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for that encouragement. That is our heartbeat and will continue to be within um, this church. I know that faithful work will only be carried out with continued passion and zeal, but that is our whole hope and vision that we would see Our kids become confident in who God is, just Mm -hmm. like Jeremiah 17 describes. He'll be like a tree planted by a stream of water that sends out its roots. And because it's connected into the source of life, there are things that are true about this tree. It doesn't have fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. It never fails to bear fruit. And that's not just for children. That's for The Christian, that's the vision that we should desire for ourselves and for one another that as we think about the body of Christ and our church family, we are like these groves, you know, of tree after tree after tree and little seeds being planted and saplings growing. And it's just this beautiful abundant forest that um, is a planting for the display of his splendor, just Mm -hmm. like Isaiah 61 says.
0: Well, for both of you, I, I am deeply grateful for your ministries, your life, your examples, your teaching passion. It's contagious. It's impacted me. It's impacted my family. And so uh, for these kinds of discussions like the one we've just had here, I always benefit from it. And so uh, I am am grateful for the platform that the Lord has given both of you and for what you are shouting from the rooftops and pointing to our great God who is awe-inspiring and the one that uh, receives all of our glory. So to both of you, thank you. Now for our segment Ask TBC where we try to answer some of the questions that uh, you have uh, sent in our way. The first one is this, why do we do Culture Matters on the blog? Specifically the Village Church blog does a does a weekly piece called Culture Matters. And so what's the hope there? And we're getting this question from a few different places and so just want to answer why we do this piece called Culture Matters. Specifically what we're trying to do here is identify important shifts or movements or topics that's happening in the culture so that we as Christians might be able to identify some of these things, be informed about them. What we're not doing right now with Culture Matters is commenting About this. We're not making commentary. We're not making explicit statements about it. We're not unpacking all of this and defining and detailing what's happening in each one of these stories. We're leaving that to the discerning Christian. And so, what we're trying to do with Culture Matters is simply highlight some things that are happening in culture because we do believe, as believers, we need to be informed. We need to be informed with the shifts and with the movements and what's being said and and how to rightly kind of jump into that space. And so um, that that's the hope behind Culture Matters and why we're doing that.
2: Yeah, I think we should just think of it as sort of a content aggregator. It's yeah, a place it's exactly where, you know, like on Twitter, people will say, retweets do not equal endorsements. There you go. There you go. We're providing you with something to think about and you can dialogue with in the context of Christian community.
0: Helpful. Really, really good. Here's a question from Daniel Nichols. Jen, I'm going to toss this one to you. Daniel asked this. I struggle with illustrations. How do y'all illustrate? So Daniel's a Southerner, maybe perhaps a Texan. So how do y'all illustrate? How do y'all practice them? How can I get better at it? So how can I get better at illustrations?
2: I sometimes think that good illustrations are what separate the average teacher from the great teacher. And we were we were talking a little about this beforehand, about how we all feel inadequate when it comes to illustrations. Uh, I think for me, the thing that has helped in that area is to use personal illustrations. I think there's a tendency to think, oh, I'm going to run out and find something on the internet that fits this or something. And you can, I mean, you can use a general illustration if you can think of one, but the ones that have always hit home the best have been the ones that I've drawn from my personal life. And often they have an element of vulnerability to them exactly, or humor. Mm -hmm. And honestly, when something happens, during my week that is either really embarrassing or really hilarious, I usually think this is the Lord providing me with <laughs> this illustration This is my content. illustration. This is my
0: opening illustration. Exactly.
2: Exactly. And there's almost always a spiritual truth I can pull from something like that. But people don't want to hear someone else's illustration. They want to hear yours. Yeah, I agree. I think there's so
1: much power to personal story, and it helps you connect with those that you're teaching and those listening to you. And I think a way to get better at illustrations is even, you know, picking piggybacking on what you just said, Jen, when you think of something, when you have a story or a moment and you see a spiritual connection, don't lose that. If you think, man, this might be a good um, illustration for this or an example for this, man, write it down mm-hmm. so you don't lose that thought. I think that's a way that you can um, grow in in illustration savviness or that word I just made up.
0: <laughs> it's a good one. By way of encouragement, I, if if we are a people who are not simply letting life kind of happen and go by, but we're thinking about life and the gospel implications and and interacting on that level. So, I am I see something, and I consider that in light of the gospel. Mm-hmm. I feel something. I consider that in light of the gospel. I'm concerned by something. I, I'm scared by something or whatever it may be, and beginning to kind of think, how does the gospel come to bear on this? What, what does this say about me? What does this say about us? What does this what, what does this mean in light of who Christ is and what he's done? That's where a lot of my illustrations will come from as I'm thinking about how the gospel applies in for me. So I'm just mm-hmm. living life, right. trying to kind of walk through it faithfully with a gospel centrality right. and then seeing, oh, the gospel fits here. The gospel fits here right. and and being able then to show mm-hmm. as you talk, as you teach, how how absolutely relevant the gospel is in just everyday, practical, normal life. Right. And I, I think it's actually freeing um, for men and women, boys and girls to kind of see that. Right. Uh, so, so you have to be some magical illustrator, but you're just one that can point out in the everyday walk of life, how powerful the gospel really is. Yeah. And
1: I think you start to learn how to see life in parables in a sense. Yeah. You think about how Jesus taught the kingdom of heaven is like this, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And so even in the course of your daily life, if you can just be looking for opportunities, just, just as you mentioned, to consider how is the kingdom of God like this thing? Is it at all? And as you train your kind of spiritual eyes to see in that way, I think illustrations
2: abound. I do think it's good not to get stuck in illustration ruts sometimes I can find you know you gotta have to consider your audience like I don't always want to use illustrations that have to do with mothering or right. or, or or uh gardening or bird watching or pugs uh, I know Josh would never want to only use sports metaphors when he is teaching okay. so that,
0: what that is is a veiled rebuke <laughs> and so Oh, was listener. it veiled? I'm sorry. Was it, I'm
2: sorry. Was <laughs> I it? It. So I do think I mean everybody is prone to it. We have we can get too locked down in our own experience and only give right. illustrations that are perhaps not hitting every piece that we want them to. So it bears thinking about. But at the end of the day, your story is the one that's probably going to be the most powerful. So as long as you're balancing it with, hey, I, I recognize there are many people here from many different backgrounds. I think you're still safe. It's good.
0: Question three from Kelly Burns. She writes this, I'm curious how to discuss predestination with a non-believer in a God-honoring and truthful way while also being kind and sensitive to the fact that they don't yet count themselves among those Jesus called out of the muck and the mire. And she goes on to say, often atheists will bring up predestination in a conversation as evidence that God is not loving. She says, for her, it's evidence that he does, in fact, love. Um, And so... And how, how do we think about this? What, what would you say to Kelly?
1: Yeah, I really liked this question and um, could tell that there was a good deal of sensitivity there about the tension and um, wanting to be Bold in a really kind way, and also recognize that in the conversation with an unbeliever around predestination, really the more fundamental issue is that they don't yet believe in Jesus. They've not yet trusted Christ. They've not yet called out for deliverance from their sin because they may not see that they are in need of deliverance. And so I think appreciating the tension shows a lot of wisdom. And um, I, I think. In engaging this conversation, if you're the one bringing it to the non believer, maybe consider a different starting point. If they're bringing it to you, then I think you don't ever have to apologize for what God has said in His Word about who He is and how He saves. And I think this question fits so perfectly in our conversation about attributes, His attributes, and being able to point to His nature and character and also help reorient the paradigm from man-centeredness to God-centeredness, that God would save anyone is evidence of incredible mercy and love. Um, And so I think as long as you're engaging the conversation with great humility and love and dependence on God's word, and then you're following that conversation up by being a good friend to this person and embodying the very things that you're hoping they would come to believe, then that's probably a great starting point.
0: It's fantastic. Thank you, guys. And, and again, thank you for both being on the show today. I always enjoy hanging out with you and talking with you. And I just want to remind everybody listening, if there's anything that you heard us talk about on the show today that you'd like to know more about, you can find the details on our website at thevillagechurch.net. Just look at the episode descriptions on our podcast show page. On our next episode, we're going to have pastor and author Tim Keller on discussing a number of things, including the Rise Initiative and the New York Project. That should be fantastic. Again, as always, if you have questions, comments, let us know on social media using the hashtag AskTVC. We'll try to answer those uh, at least a handful every episode. See you next time. God bless.